Today I talked to the American author Jonathan Safran Foer about how our food systems influence climate change and about what we can do as individuals to make a difference. I often find it really hard to live my values. I think uh, being a vegan is the best diet um, vis-a-vis you know, the planet and climate change. I also think never flying is the best you know, relationship to have to travel, but I fly as well. And never driving would be the ideal you know, way to um, move around a city, and yet I own a car. And not having children would be the best way to control overpopulation, and I have two kids. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jonsson. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I'm speaking with one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Safran Foer. In 2002, he rose to international prominence when his book Everything is Illuminated was published and won the National Jewish Book Award. That book and his later novels Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and Here I Am all deals with family trauma and loss. However, Safran Foer has also achieved success as a non-fiction writer. In 2009, he wrote Eating Animals, part memoir and part investigative reporting, dealing with factory farming and the ethics of what we eat. The book became a New York Times bestseller and was later made into a documentary narrated by Natalia Portman. His latest book, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, focuses on the connection between climate change and farming animals. To save the planet, Safran Foer argues that we must sacrifice immediate comfort for the sake of the future. And it all starts with what we eat or don't eat, for instance, for breakfast. So thank you so much for, for joining me, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let me start by asking you, what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> um, well, you caught me on a, on a lucky day because I actually had breakfast this morning. Maybe I was anticipating your question. <laughs> I had uh, oatmeal. Ah, okay. Oatmeal, a nice, warm, comforting breakfast. I find that maybe it's the same for you. My relationship to food uh tends to have something to do with my feelings, which tends to have something to do with what's going on in the world. And more chaotic the world becomes, the more comforting my food becomes. I can relate to that, but uh, I have to admit that when I feel like that, I tend to eat bacon. Uh, my version of bacon might be like French fries, I suppose. Yeah, but I'm of course asking because I read the, read your book, on animal welfare called Eating Animals, and it, it, it really did make a a big impression on me. At that time, I, I served as a member of the European Parliament, and I was the president of the Eurogroup for Animal, uh, the Intergroup for Animal Welfare in the European Parliament, and we discussed your book, and, and, and we, uh, 
we all agreed that you had some extremely important points in that. And, and of course, the book uh, shows just how big of an ethical problem factory farming can be. Um, and the point that I'm getting to now is that when I then later uh, read your book, We Are the Weather, I found out that even you, Jonathan, who wrote this important book that made, I know of people that read that book and became vegans after reading it, even you sometimes eat a, a beef burger. Well, there's a lot to say. Uh, so I, I don't now. Um, I, I certainly don't make a habit of it. I, I referred in the book to a couple of times when I did a few years ago, and this was exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation about the relationship between food and feelings. Um, you know, it was in a moment when I was uh, just particularly vulnerable and feeling, I don't know, in need of comfort. And um, for somebody who has uh, was raised as a vegetarian, they would find no comfort in a hamburger. I was raised eating hamburgers all the time. And I have very positive um, emotional associations with meat, which has made it harder for me, you know, to move away from it. I like the thing you said, you said it quite by accident about your comfort food is bacon. And then, and then you went on to say that you were a part of a panel on um, animal welfare most we are used to the idea until quite recently that that would be a tremendous paradox um and people would be so afraid of the accusation of hypocrisy that they wouldn't even want to admit what you just admitted which is both that there's a food that you like and that you have these ethical concerns and obviously the food and the concerns are in conflict or they can be in conflict um so the question is what do we do with those conflicts, conflicts within us and conflicts outside of us. How do we strike a balance that can, you know, both reflect our cravings, reflect our personal histories, reflect our cultures, but also reflect our values. And um, something that's given me a lot of hope over the last few years is we've moved away from um, these kinds of absolutes and uh, toward um, the question of what are you doing? Not, not what are you not doing? Not what's the distance between, you know, who you are and perfection, but instead, what are you doing, you know, to act on your values? And there's a huge space that opens up for people. Um, you know, the reality is most, most people listening to this are not vegetarian. And most people listening to this are not going to become vegetarian. But I would bet that everybody listening to this shares the values that inspired me to write eating animals and inspired you to do the work that you've done for animal welfare. So, you know, finding ways to give room for people to, to begin a journey, you know, of caring is the most important thing. I think that's an extremely important point. And, and it's also one that you elaborate on in, in, in your recent book, we, we are the weather saving the planet begins at breakfast. And I think you have a compelling argument there that, okay, so maybe it would be best for the planet if everybody were weakened and, and you've chosen that lifestyle yourself. But, but maybe it's not, uh, maybe it doesn't have to be so 
uh, interfering with a human's life. Maybe you don't have to make that very extreme for many people, George. It definitely would be for me personally. But you can actually maybe do a big difference if you eat less meat. So, you know, to just to point out one small correction, I'm actually not a vegan. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And um, is that because I think vegetarianism is the best diet? No, it's not. It's because it's the balance that I've struck. You would argue that life. being a vegan would be better, actually, ethically. It's what I wish I were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And one can say, well, what's wrong with you then? You know? Well, what's wrong with me is that um, I, perhaps because I'm weaker than other people or maybe because I'm exactly like other people, I often find it really hard oh. to live my values. Yeah. I think uh, being a vegan is the best diet vis-a-vis um, -vis, you know, the planet and climate change. I also think never flying is the best you know, relationship to have to travel, but I fly as well. And never driving would be the ideal um, you know, way to um, move around a city, and yet I own a car. And not having children would be the best way to control overpopulation, and I have two kids. So you know, what do we do with these realities? Do we lie? I could have just not corrected you when you said you're sure. a vegan, yeah. and it would have been a little more elegant and a little less <laughs> embarrassing. Um, not for not for the intellectual argument that you're making now, though. <laughs> Using yourself as an example is is perfect. Well, the argument is that um, something is asked of us, and it's not being asked by um, another uh, person who has opinions. It's being asked of us by the planet, and the science really isn't controversial. We know that there are four um, activities which are um, high impact or the highest impact. Which are which the ones I just related? You know, having fewer children, driving less, flying less, and eating fewer animal products. Um, each of us can contribute in different ways because we live different lives. You know, for uh, some people, the notion of being a vegetarian is utterly impossible to imagine. But the idea that they they wouldn't fly is very easy to imagine because they never fly. You know, for me. Um, Refraining from meat is relatively easy. I wouldn't say it's simple, but it's relatively easy. The notion of not flying is impossible to imagine. Um, so rather than have a kind of rigid perspective that uh, relishes in finding people's faults, um, if instead each of us asked really honestly, first of all, if we just engage with the science honestly, and we have a problem right now where... You can tell me if this is the same in Europe. In America, it's not only the right, it's also the left that has begun to deny science. And um, in terms of practice, you know, um, the left certainly accepts science and the, the science of climate change in the, in the sense of attending marches and putting a bumper sticker on the car and knowing the right things to say at a dinner party. But um, the left, and, and I consider myself part of the left, will often indulge symbolic activities rather than the practical activities. So we um, make a big deal about um, boycotting plastic straws, but make no effort to reduce our consumption of animal products, even though the planet cares very, very little about the plastic straws and cares enormously about the animal products. 
Okay, we'll 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 get back to that, and I also want to discuss with you the 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 connection between individual choices, uh, individual actions, and big collective political choices and actions. Uh, but but before we get to that, we just need to to also uh, uh, wrap up the first part of our conversation on on eating less meat, just to make it very clear. I, your argument, if I understand you correctly. And I hope I do since I read your book and I should be able to grasp it. Uh, if it's too difficult for you to become a vegan or a vegetarian, the answer is not then say to say, okay, well, I can just then eat as much meat as I want. You can actually make a difference cutting down on your meat consumption because if, for instance, everybody chose to not eat meat for breakfast and lunch, that would make a huge impact for, for the planet. I guess you could also say, Start, stopped eating meat uh, a few no, few days a week or something doesn't probably not doesn't matter which uh, rules you set up for yourself but if you do that and we do that collectively then it makes a, a huge difference yeah i mean the most comprehensive analysis of the relationship between food and climate change was published in i think it was 2019 in nature magazine and the authors um studied food systems all over the planet and found that um, in places where there isn't access uh, to other kinds of foods um, and where people are, um, you know, constitutionally malnourished, uh, they can afford to eat a little bit more meat and dairy than they are now. But in Europe and in the United States, in North America, um, we have to reduce our meat intake by about 90%, our red meat intake, I should say and our dairy intake by about 60%. So one can look at those numbers and be really intimidated and say that's... that's so when you say we are to reduce, that's to stay below 1.5 degrees in temperature exactly. increase? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but, you know, what the science is not saying is that we have to shift our identities. It's not saying that you can never eat it again. You know, one exercise I often do with friends when we're having this conversation is... I say, think about the situations when eating meat really matters to you. you know? So let's include holidays. Let's include birthdays. Let's include that time you go on a date to the fancy restaurant where you've heard about the chef. You know, um, Let's include any time when it's going to create you know, a family gathering, any time it's going to create really positive memories. Like how many meals in the year? do you think qualify? So we're going to remove all the times you eat it just because it's there, just because you ate it yesterday. We're going to remove the sandwich that you don't even like anyway, you know, but you eat it because whatever, because it's the thing you've been eating in the past. Most people, for most people, the number's pretty small. You know, maybe if you're being really honest, you know, really honest about how often does it matter to you? Does it matter to you once a week? Does it matter to you once a month? Um, I don't know because I'm not you and your answer will be different than my answer will be different than somebody else's answer. But that kind of like deep questioning, you know, of oneself, um, I think reveals that it's, it's actually easier than we're imagining. You could also add to that, I guess that it also matters what kind of meat you eat. So if you substitute red meat, for instance, with, um, chicken, or, or light meat, um, that's a huge 
difference also in the in the in the uh, greenhouse gas footprint from that choice it is it is i get you know it's it's funny because i, I am not a farmer and i'm not a scientist and i'm not even really an advocate i kind of walked backwards into this issue it's something i've been thinking about since i was a kid um i think most kids think about it at some point um, because it's so antithetical to the other stories that we tell about animals um, which, by the way, is not to say that it's necessarily wrong. Um, a lot of things are really weird to kids, um, like sex, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong. But you know, kids are you have know, the family dog who you treat in a certain way. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You have a stuffed animal you go to sleep with, and you read books when you're falling asleep with animals as heroes, and so on and so forth. But there's this other thing that we do, which is we kill and dismember animals and eat their bodies. Um, so anyway. I find it funny when people will ask me questions like, Hey, which, which meat should I, which kind of meat should I give up and which should I eat? Um, you know, as if I'm an expert, I'm not an expert, but I, I've, I've in an effort to figure out what I am comfortable with in my own life, I've done a lot of reading and I've talked to a lot of people. And so when somebody asks me that question, I will often say, well, what matters to you? You know, if, if, if it's uh, greenhouse gas emissions, then Far, far, far and away, beef is the thing to give up. Um, beef is almost entirely responsible for the destruction of um, the rainforests. Um, it's about 93% of the Amazon is destroyed only for the purpose of cattle, cattle grazing and growing co- crops to feed cattle. Um, and, and it is beef that produces, um, is the leading source of methane emissions. Yeah. Um, which is a much more potent uh, greenhouse gas than CO2, for instance. Right. Most of our listeners will probably know this, but nonetheless. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, if animal welfare is what you care about, there's, it takes about 220 chickens to, to produce the meat of one cow. So, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about, if one wants to think about animals as individuals, um, which I do. Plus you can also, plus you can also argue that, then again, you need to differentiate between, so what kind of a life did that chicken have? If it's a factory farm broiler chicken, then I would argue that's probably the worst kind of meat production you can, you from an animal welfare perspective at least, that you can buy. Whereas uh, a grass-fed cow probably had a pretty good life. I think that's true. And I, I think, by the way, that exercise of imagining yourself into... Uh, I don't know, the consciousness or the position of an animal. That's something that intellectuals have been resistant to over time. And for good reasons, like it can be dangerous to anthropomorphize. Animals aren't humans. They? That having been said, it, it might help just clarify our own thinking about what is right and what is wrong. Um and not always in the direction that you think. So when I was researching eating animals, you know, I went to factory farms, which we can talk about later, why that was such an incredibly difficult thing to do in the first place. But I saw things that were so plainly wrong. You know, um, I would go as far as saying there's not a single person listening to this who, if they saw what I saw inside factory farms, would say, I'm okay with that. Hmm. They might still eat the products because... You know, life is complicated, and because sure. 
Sometimes we're hungry and sometimes we're in a rush and sometimes we find ways to forget things, but nobody would say, I'm okay with that. Hmm. Conversely, I went to some farms. I'm thinking of Nyman Ranch in particular in um, Bolinas, California. And I thought, you know, if I were a cow and somebody said to me, this is the deal. This is the life you'll get. We'll, yeah. We're going to kill you, but you will be born and you will have this life because you know, if, if we don't eat hamburgers and steak, if we don't eat red meat, there will be no more cows. That's the end of cows. Um, so, um, so I had to admit, you know, I, maybe I would take that deal. So whatever the case, it's a, it's a mental exercise that I have found to be so helpful, not only in terms of thinking about food, but in terms of like stretching my, um, emotional imagination and my empathy it's you know um it's an exercise that of trying to imagine oneself into the life of another that can be um revelatory you know and can and can sometimes transcend even our reason and our rhetoric we're seeing it happen in ukraine now um you know europe and america were not ready to let Ukraine blow in the wind, but we're ready to, to maintain a, a real distance from the conflict. And then when Zelensky speaks in the way that he does, he has exercised our empathic imaginations. He's made it so much easier to make that mental leap into the lives of whatever out, the versions of us are in Ukraine. And we suddenly have to say, this is unacceptable. Like This is totally unacceptable. That's the perfect bridge to what I want to ask you now, because you make another important point in your book, which is that the concept of climate change and the threat to us all that it poses is different from many other threats. And you, you actually do compare it to the Holocaust, even, I think, in, in, in your book. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on, on, on that? So it wasn't so much that I was comparing it to the Holocaust as that I was comparing responses. No, no, I, I know, I know that, but um, you know, in in particular, why I start the book, it's it's quite near the beginning by telling the story of Jan Karski, who was a young um, Catholic in the Polish underground um, who snuck himself into the Warsaw ghetto and snuck himself into an extermination camp for the purpose of gathering information and gathering testimonies to bring to the West, um, which he did. And he got all the way to Washington, DC. Um, and one of his first meetings was with Supreme court justice, Felix Frankfurter, who is sort of known as one of the most intelligent humans uh, America has ever produced. And who was, who was, by the way, himself Jewish, which is relevant in this story. Um, um, Karski laid out all of the sort of documentation that he had, and he conveyed all of the testimonies that he'd accumulated. And Frankfurter, th- you know, took it all in, and he asked a series of questions in response, like, "How high is this war? This wall that you're talking about in the Warsaw Ghetto? And what's it made out of? And how does food get in and out?" And after they'd spoken for a while. Frankfurter said, you know, I have to tell you the truth. Um, I, I have to be frank with you. I, I don't believe what you're saying. 
And Karski said, how can you not believe what I'm saying? I, you don't even have to believe me. Look at all the evidence that I brought yeah, on top yeah, of yeah, yeah. What motivation would I have for lying about this? And Frank Fritters said, I didn't say that you were lying. I said that I am incapable of believing you. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. says this very beautiful line. He says, my, my mind and my heart were made in such a way that I can't believe you. And, you know, our minds and hearts are made in such a way that it's, it's very, very difficult to believe in something that is unprecedented um, and to believe in something that is uh, on a scale so vast and so tragic that our incentives to close our eyes to it are, are just too strong, or maybe even just like the limits of our imaginations are, are too constraining. Um, so that was the case with Frankfurter and the Holocaust. Um, it was the case with most of my relatives in the Holocaust who um, decided not to leave where they were living. It's not because they were cowardly. It's not because they were any less intelligent. Um, it's because their minds and hearts were made in such a way that it was impossible to believe. Um, fortunately for me, my grandmother was different and, um, and escaped. So facing climate change, climate change is a problem that is so vast and so complicated um, and so seemingly distant. You know, even, even when the uh, hurricanes are battering lower Manhattan, it still feels distant. It feels like something that's going to happen to other people somewhere else in the future. That even though we intellectually know that it's true. Yeah. We even know there's a causality between our actions and what happens. Right. We just don't believe it. Um, so, what, you know, it's, it's an interesting way to think about what climate change denial is. Um, is climate change denial somebody who says, uh, you know, the scientists are wrong? Or is climate change denial somebody who says the scientists are right, I'm just not going to do anything in my life sure. in response to it? But Jonathan, you, you identify yourself as being from the left, and, and, and so do I, obviously. What does that say about our ideology, ideology then and our, our way of looking at humans? Because we believe that people are altruists. And if we are all altruists, why are we not able to make the conclusion, which is obvious, we are also rational, we read the reports, we know that we need to fundamentally change the way we live, the way we consume, the way we produce. Why Why don't we do it? I would argue that we are actually doing a lot also as a, we definitely are in my country and the US even is doing much more now and all of that. So let me just acknowledge that. But 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 my question is, why are we not acting as if we are in a, you compared it yourself in, in your book to a war situation. You also used another analogy, which was, if you see your kid on a playground falling over, you will you will jump to save the kid, right? No matter what, <laughs> it'll hurt you. But you might not be willing to do the actions that's necessary for preventing climate change, even though climate change can have severe effects also on the same child that you love so much. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I find these conversations work best when they are um, personal, you know, yeah. rather than broad. So you had asked, we share 
progressive values, you know, without knowing the details of I, of your politics and the details of mine, I, I have a, a feeling they overlap quite a bit. Um, I would assume. So why is it that you make the choices you make? Like when you came to America during COVID, presumably you flew, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So how do you... How do you how do you square it in your own life? How do you explain that? That is that's a great question. Well, actually, to give you a, a, a very pragmatic and and precise answer to that, I I am um, a big believer in big collective solutions, political solutions. It's not that I don't believe in personal responsibility, and it's not that I don't believe in bottom up solutions. Also, but for instance, on flying. I don't think we will ever see a situation where people will stop flying. I mean, if you and I that spend our lives thinking about these things and are engaged in this, if we still fly, then I mean, how will we ever stop this problem? And also adding to that, in 2050, there will be 10 billion people on the planet and a higher percentage of them than we have today will be in the middle class and be able to fly. So if we are to solve the problem by flying less, then the battle is lost. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to make the flying sustainable. So what have we done? Well, the Danish government has just decided then that from 2025, we want one of our domestic uh, plane uh, routes to be uh, completely green, so sustainable fuels. And from 2030, all of them need to be completely green. Now, that's a small part of the world's emissions, but if we do this and use the resources necessary to subsidize this, then that will help spark the technology that others will then use. So the big companies of the world engage in this, are looking at Denmark now and want to engage in this because they need somebody that are willing to make those investments. So that's one way of dealing with it. What we're also doing in, in the Danish government is to um, make sure that we we estimate how much emissions of our flying causes and then we plant trees. Uh, so, so that's a way of, of offsetting. I'm, I, I, I think it's something that we, uh, I think it's a good thing that we do it. I also know that that's not a perfect solution because, uh, the pollution is still out there. Uh, and, and the trees that we plant, if, I mean, if we still planted the trees and didn't do the flying, then that would be better, obviously. So I'm not saying that's a perfect solution, but you asked me, what do we do? Well, that, that is what we, what we do. Maybe this is a good good way of talking about the difference between the personal responsibility and this responsibility that we have in common as a society. Because I really like the argument that you have in your book that everybody can make a difference. But I'm also a rational person and I can also feel a little bit not provoked because, as I said, I like it, but I'm sure you know what I'm getting at when I say that, okay, well, Will it matter whether or not you eat a burger or not? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I just want. Would, I'd just like you to 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 hear your opinion on 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 that difference between different types of action. Sure. Um, well, you know, firstly, I'm not so sure the distinction is that sharp. You know, maybe not. Maybe um, not. No. You know, you said you read Eating Animals, my book, and that it influenced you to take it definitely or did. to participate politically. Right. Yeah. I yeah. wrote that book because of a babysitter I had when I was a kid <laughs> who, was, who decided not to eat meat at a meal when I was with her. So was her 
action individual or was it like systemic? Because in a ambling and convoluted way, it did lead to a minister in Denmark, you know, taking political action. I know it's not quite that clear. Yeah. Um, no, no, but in a way it is. We, of course, you're right that it doesn't matter whether or not um, I eat a burger at a given meal. Although um, at some point we are talking about, you know, individual lives of animals and the numbers and the numbers certainly do. There is a connection. The numbers do matter. But the more important point is um, you know, we've never lived in a more interconnected world. We've never lived in a world where our behaviors are more, our choices are more witnessed. Um, almost always, this is a bad thing. Um, sometimes it's a good thing. Um, you know, just when we all wanted uh, Facebook to go out of existence, um, maybe it will have a useful role to play in terms of connecting Ukrainians, for example, sure. yeah. or connecting Russians to the outside world. Um, I promise you that if you were to not even go vegetarian, but start to reduce your consumption of animal products, Google would know about it. Amazon would know about it. Facebook would know about it. When you go to a restaurant and you ask the waiter, um, hey, do you have any, uh, is there, I don't know, is there beef stock in that soup? The waiter knows about it. The person sitting across from you knows about it. The waiter goes back and asks the chef, hey, is there beef stock in that soup? And so, you know, are these individual actions or are they systemic actions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also changing our behaviors changes us. Yeah. I think people who make these choices in their lives are far more likely to be political in a broad sure. way. Um, far more likely to make these issues concerns when they vote and, and yeah. to, to vote in the first place and maybe even to go into a life of politics. Um, you know, each of us has a certain like set of tools, you know, in terms of what we can offer. You are a, a minister. I'm not. So, you know, you can participate um, in crafting legislation in a way that I can't, but I can, there are things that I can craft, you know, hmm. that can hopefully, uh, you know, disseminate these same messages. One thing that we know for sure is that individual action alone will not save the planet. Yeah. It won't. We need broad systemic action. We need legislation. We need corporate practices to change. We also know that we can't save the planet without individual action. Um, the IPCC has said we have no hope of re of reaching the, um, goals of the Paris Climate Accords if we don't dramatically um, reduce our intake of animal products. How are we going to do that? Uh -huh. you know, I'd be curious what your, what your you know, sort of methods are in government. Is it, to is it to tax foods? Is it to ration foods? Is it to simply in America, it would be radical if all we did was enforce laws that are already on the books? You know, if, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if the meat industry were um, had to be responsive to current environmental laws, it would it would put the meat industry out of business. I, I do actually totally agree with you. I think that if we are to tackle this problem and this challenge, we need to use a multitude of political instruments. So there's 
There's market-based instruments. What does that mean? Well, that's taxation, for instance, or a um, uh, carbon credit uh, trading system like the one we have in the EU. Now, we're deploying both of those measures in, in, in Denmark. We are part of the EU. In the EU right now, the emission trading system does not cover the agricultural sector, but I, I think it probably will in, in a few years. We are expanding the scope of it now to also include transport and, and buildings. Um, uh, but we are, in fact, making now a, a CO2 taxation or rather a greenhouse gas taxation where we uh, wanted to have a broad base so that you tax the emissions equally at a high level in all sectors. Uh, so that uh, it's not, we, we've been taxing in Denmark for many years, big industry and, and, and uh, energy sector uh, with a CO2 tax, but we needed to also cover uh, all parts of industry and the agriculture sector. Now, this is actually quite a difficult technical uh, thing to do because how do you calculate it? And, and it, also, it also gives us a problem of how do you avoid carbon leakage? How do we avoid that when we tax it, that it doesn't just, the production just doesn't just move to another country and Danish consumers then start importing something with, that might, as a paradox, have an even higher footprint because maybe they don't have the same environmental standards as in, as in Denmark. But it's one of the tools, probably the most important tool that we, that we will use. Then there's regulation. So uh, you regulate how much, uh, uh, sorry, how, how you produce. So you can, there's different types of things that you can do with regards to how you treat the manure in a, in a farm, how much you're allowed to put on the field and thereby how many emissions you'll get. We're also looking into the possibilities of adding uh, something to the feed. Uh, so we have different types of uh, additives that you can put in the feed that'll, that'll then lead to less emissions from the individual cow. So these are some of the things that, we, that we're doing. Then, of course, voluntary action, where the government also plays a role because we, 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 have, um, we have official advice on what to eat and, and people actually listen to it. You know? So f since I was a kid, it was about health. Now it's not only about health, it's also about the environment and the climate. So we try and you know, give people the information. It's better to eat veggies, obviously, but it's also better to eat chicken instead of red meat and all of these things to, get, to make sure that people have the possibilities of, of making an educated uh, choice. So that's where, that's where politics and individual action uh, are interlinked. Mm -hmm. You might have heard in New York City now in the public school system, they have um, vegetarian Monday and vegan Friday. I did not at, know that. At every at every public school in the city, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's really inspiring. Um, and there are ways of, of also of nudging behavior. You know, not not enforcing, but nudging. So, if uh, you know, the the classic example is um, organ donorship. So, in America, you have to opt in to become an organ donor. In most of Europe, you have to opt out in order not to become an organ donor. And, and the numbers testify to how, you know, simply phrasing a choice in a certain way can produce such radically different results. And, you know, I think that in the very near future, um, on a college campus, for example, where when you go to the eating hall, presently, 
they have, you know, the five dinner options for that night. And then they have the vegetarian option. I, I, I think that, um, I think within the next couple of years that will be inverted and you'll have five dinner options and the meat option. So we don't need to shame people who want to eat meat. We don't need to make it against the law. But if we can create a choice architecture where they're nudged not to, you know, then these things add up very, very quickly. Yeah, well, I, I, I think you're, you're right. And I think that young people probably across the planet, I would say, are, are so engaged in these issues and, and they, they influence the world by their own behavior, but they also influence their parents. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've met policymakers that have changed their mind on this. And when I asked them why, it's because of their kids. Now, I, 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 I'm in politics because of these issues. And I, so I've, I've been engaged with this for, for more than 20 years now. But 20 years ago, uh, this, I mean, this just wasn't an issue. And there's people that, <laughs> if somebody had told me then that they would be engaged in this question, I would, I would simply not have believed, uh, believed them. The, the, the CEO of the, the Danish... Uh, biggest uh, Danish uh, company that uh, slaughter animals and sell meat said that he believes that in the future eating a steak will be like drinking a glass of champagne today. It's not something that you do often. It's something you do at a special occasion. You know, that's, that's, that's something coming from somebody that makes a living selling steaks. Well, it's, yeah, it's not a coincidence that some of the biggest investors in, you know, plant-based meats Um, have been the meat industry itself. Um, you know, this might bring us to like a good a good point to end on, which is we talk about saving the planet. You know, are we going to save the planet or not? As if it were a binary. Yeah. You know, as if it were a light switch that's going to be up or down. Um, Earth is not going anywhere anytime soon, and there will be humans on Earth for a very very long time. Um, the question is how much loss will we tolerate? You know, like how many people will die from famine, from climate induced famine? How many, uh, diseases will be, uh, created? How many cities will be lost to rising sea levels? How many days of the year will we be able to be outside? Like how many children, um, dying from, climate migrations and climate wars and climate famines will we tolerate? Um, I find that it's not only more truthful to think about it that way, but it, it, it creates a greater sense of urgency because when faced with a, a binary of like, are we going to lose the planet? Are we going to save them? I don't know. It actually allows people who are very smart, like Jonathan Franzen, to say, it's already over. We've already lost it. As opposed to saying, how many kids are you okay? Can you tolerate, you know, dying from this? How many um, refugees can you tolerate? And then when we start to think about it that way, in terms of a spectrum that we have influence over, you know, the future is going to be, there is going to be a future. There will. It's a question of how good or bad will the future be? How much pain and suffering will there be? Excellent point to end on, Dernsen. Uh, thank you so much for for joining me, and I uh, I look forward to to reading your next book. Will that be a will that be fiction or will that also be a political book? Um, it will be fiction.
But you know, everything is, everything is political. Everything is political, even fiction. <laughs> I, I know. I agree with. I agree with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.